Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Joel E. Dimsdale. Last name is spelled D-I-M-S-D-A-L-E. He's just published a book, and you can see it here if you're watching it on Rockfin or X. Dark Persuasion, A History of Brainwashing from Pavlov to Social Media. It's an excellent book. I have a copy of it right here, a hard, hardbound copy that I've read through and made a lot of notes and uh he has this is not his first book he also published i think in 2020 a book titled anatomy of malice the enigma of the nazi war criminals and uh, dr dimsdale is a distinguished professor emeritus in the department of psychiatry at ucsd he's the author of over 500 publications and he obtained his ba degree in biology from carlton college and then his ma in sociology and then an md degree from stanford university he obtained his psychiatric training at Massachusetts General Hospital, then completed a fellowship in psychobiology, the New England Regional Primate Center. He was on the faculty of Harvard Medical School from 1976 until 1985, when he moved to the University of California, San Diego. Good choice, great school, great location uh, in La Jolla. But like I said, we're going to talk about this book, Dark Persuasion, really interesting book and a lot of information that I hadn't read before. So Dr. Joel E. Dimsdale, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be be with you. Excellent. So for people who may not have heard your name, maybe your other books, maybe you could talk a little bit, maybe add to the bio I read and what got you interested in writing this particular book, Dark Persuasion. Most of my professional life, I've been interested in issues of the physiology of stress and sleep, but I've also been very interested in how people make bad decisions, terrible decisions that aren't even in their own best interest. That led me to uh, writing uh, the earlier book, Anatomy of Malice, where I studied the Nazi cabinet ministers who were on trial at Nuremberg, trying to understand their behavior, how were they persuaded to do these dreadful things. I, I finished that book and um, although I learned a lot, I realized that really didn't tell me much about uh, the German populace and how Hitler was able to persuade so many people to do horrible things. Uh, the cabinet ministers were orchestrators rather than perpetrators. Uh, but how do, how do people get persuaded? You know, one answer is propaganda. Another answer may be that certain people, nationalities are more violent than others. I, I don't think that's true. Uh, but a third one is brainwashing. Now, that's a Baroque term that uh, isn't popular at all in professional circles, although it's very popular in popular culture. Psychiatrists and psychologists prefer the term coercive persuasion. So I, I had this long professional interest in coercive persuasion, but I probably never would have pursued it into a book except for my neighbors. The, uh, my neighbors had themselves castrated and then committed a mass suicide uh, in conjunction with the Hale-Bopp comet. The, this was the Heavens Group 
uh, uh, Heaven's Gate, Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate is how it's commonly known. Heaven's Gate uh, group uh, in San Diego. And, you know, when these things happen long ago and far away, you can ignore them. But when it's your neighbors, it's another thing entirely. Right, so it's like an open question. How did they get to that point where they did took these drastic uh, decisions? You have a full chapter on Heaven's Gate in your book, too. But a lot of this, this dark persuasion doesn't... I mean, that's the present. It goes all the way back even pre-World War II, right? Is the beginning of these... Where people were perceiving this manipulation of uh, other people, right? It's an old idea of uh, the, uh, and you know, when I tell people I'm interested in brainwashing, their first, their first response is, Joel, come on, that's kind of musty, old, bad, bad science and Cold War nonsense. And, uh, and that's partially true, except it goes way back before the Cold War. Uh, and although there were a lot of evil people involved with it. Uh, there were some brilliant scientists involved as well. And it's not just a Cold War phenomenon. It, it Coercive persuasion takes place everywhere. I mean, in, in a way, if you think of torture, uh, inquisition, there are many models of trying to impose belief and get people to confess to things that were uh, in no way true. But coercive persuasion really took off in the Soviet Union uh, in the early days of, uh, of communism. Uh, Pavlov was a Nobel Award winner. Uh, and although most of us think of Pavlov just in terms of slobbering dogs and ringing bells, he was brilliant. He could teach a dog to respond precisely um, to the middle C and to ignore a D in playing uh, on the piano. So he was a very precise uh, 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 person who could train uh, dogs very well. And he was interested uh, in, in the phenomenon of training. Uh, he got interested in people along the way due to uh, a rare, uh, severe flood in St. Petersburg. The, the Neva River flooded more than usual and uh, flooded the dog lab to the point of, of dr almost drowning the dogs. And the dogs were rescued at the last minute, uh, but they were never the same they forgot all the things that Pavlov had patiently taught them and their personalities changed. Timid ones became hostile, aggressive, and vice versa. Pavlov got very interested in the, the effects of stress on learning and stress on behavior and personality. Lenin, interestingly, visited Pavlov, uh, and it wasn't a brief visit. He wasn't a photo op at all. And Lenin essentially uh, said to Pavlov, look, can you help me remake the Soviet people? 
so that they will be good communists. And Pavlov, thinking for a bit, said, well, yes, yes, I can. In return, Lenin endowed Pavlov's Institute with a huge uh, staff. And remember, those were the days when the Soviet Union was practically in famine. Uh, so Pavlov was very well supported. And Stalin continued that support. So this uh, interest in a scientific study of persuasion really begins with Pavlov, and it continues in various theme and variation to today. Right. So Pavlov really permeates your whole book beginning to end. is like he's kind of the foundational figure, right? Uh, he's a fascinating man, uh, and he influenced, uh, continues to influence uh, uh, physiology and medicine, and he influenced many of the people who went on to do a variety of studies in coercive persuasion. Right, and so kind of he influences, or some of his techniques kind of come into these show trials, right? Those are all very important. Like, why? Did all of these people agree? It's really kind of a precursor to what happened in Korea, right? So all these Soviet show trials, why are these people getting up and saying, yeah, I did commit crimes against the state, even though they didn't, uh, the facts and evidence in some of the cases didn't show that they did commit crimes against the communist government. So this, right? is, this is a very interesting uh, uh, comment. Uh, can you, I think the real question is, can you persuade somebody to believe something that he's saying? That's different from can you persuade somebody to say something outrageous in a trial? And uh, it, was, it was clear during the Stalin show trials that they could uh, uh, elicit un bizarre, unusual confessions. The question is whether the defendants really believed these confessions. They appeared to. They uh, they begged for death. Um, shoot me! I'm I'm a traitor uh, uh, in open courtroom. Now, people who are skeptical of uh, coercive persuasion in terms of changing beliefs, people will say, "Well, look, those people were tortured, were exhausted. They longed for death. Death was a release from them, and or." The, the, the Stalinists were threatening their families so that this was an effort to protect the family. Same thing in Korea. There are two, two different sorts of things that happened in Korea. One, you had Korean POWs, Korean War POWs, um, confessing to all sorts of things, uh, probably improbable. But what really troubled people was that a couple dozen of our soldiers defected to China and Russia. That's what really uh, caused a, a crisis in the United States and stirred up the, this concern that the communists in particular had invented some powerful weapon of brainwashing. Right. So these guys, some, and it, it was different. So this word brainwashing comes from a Chinese word. I forgot what it was, but you mentioned it in your book, but it really wasn't in parlance until 
after the Korean War, right? But uh, there was really kind of thought reform. You mentioned Lifton, I think was famous. Yeah, the, the, the term was a brilliant term coded by um, an OSS uh, uh, agent who specialized in propaganda. And it was a, it was a terrific term. It still is, uh, uh, you know, brainwashing, uh, outnumbers coercive persuasion a hundred to one. If you look it up on, on, uh, do a Google search, it's, it's phenomenal uh, how dominant that, that is the, um, uh, what, what Robert Lifton pointed out and what was new in, um, in the Korean war and with, uh, uh, China was the introduction of social manipulation and conformity pressures. Uh, people have been torturing other people for for centuries, and people have played on the stressfulness of imprisonment, sleep deprivation, isolation. All of those things are crucial ingredients for coercive persuasion. But what the Chinese came up with was uh, uh, group sessions, group criticisms, very powerful conformity pressures. And uh, that was uh, something new in, in the history of coercive persuasion. Now, you know, from our point of view today, uh, if a couple dozen soldiers do something peculiar or awful out of a total sample of a million, what, what do you think? Is that, is, is that something that you could simply say it's a random event or uh, was this something new and different? We as a culture... We're just blown away by this. We just never, uh, never encountered this before, and we're terrified. And uh, uh, you look at uh, OSS documents of those times, and uh, people are are very worried about it. And in popular culture, it was an enormously appealing uh, idea. The Manchurian Candidate. What a terrific movie! Not not much. Not much evidence that uh, uh, of this, but but it was a, what what an enduring popular uh, film. Right, it's in the context of the Cold War, right? So it's you mentioned in your book, it pretty much started right after World War II. This kind of mutual paranoia, but the battle of ideologies was real, and this was seen. These kind of uh, thought reform techniques were seen as a a threat, right? A threat to the American way of life back then. It, it, actually, it actually began a little before uh, the Cold War. It really um, began in the run-up to World War II. Um, everybody, uh, both uh, the Nazis and the Allies, were uh, interested in finding a way to interrogate the enemy and to compel them to tell the truth. Wouldn't that be nice if we didn't have to torture people, if we could just give somebody a drug and force them to tell the truth? Uh, so that was a, a, a goal 
um, in military intelligence uh, on on both sides of the conflict. In, indeed, in in uh, in, in uh, Nazi concentration camps in Dachau, they experimented uh, with hallucinogens to see whether that could compel truth telling uh, in uh, the prisoners. And on our side. We uh, impaneled a blue ribbon panel of, of experts to look into this. And uh, curiously, the experts decided that marijuana was the most premise, promising uh, drug to compel truth telling. And there ensued a fascinating series of studies. Uh, this uh, now is fully into the Cold War years, series of studies where people were drugged with various uh, compounds, uh, uh, rarely with informed consent, to see what it did to their behavior. Right, and you mentioned George White. He's, his name always kind of comes up in these midnight climax things, and it's really something else. So they were really on a kind of a quest for the kind of miracle drug, right? You, you have a kind of a full chapter on these drugs that they wanted to have that that could could well like, it's, uh, it's these these drugs are are interesting most of them were repurposed drugs that were already in use for other purposes in in obstetrics for instance um, there was a, a a movement towards uh a or twilight sleep which is uh, was a, allowed a woman to uh, give birth somewhat sedated and somewhat um, amnestic for the experience. The, uh, uh, there was an obstetrician in a rural town in Texas who administered the drug to a, a woman in labor. Uh, she was uh, in, uh, in, in a farmhouse. And um, after he delivered the baby, and while the mother was still out of it on drugs, he turned to the father and said, where, where are the kitchen scales? I want to weigh the baby. And uh, the father kind of shrugged his shoulder and didn't know the answer. But the, the mother, who was still half anesthetized, muttered there behind the door in the kitchen. So with this, the, uh, the doctor became utterly convinced that these drugs could compel the truth. Uh, and he went all over the country because uh, uh, he felt that, and this was, again, keep in mind that this was a long time ago. He felt that about a third of, of people in prison were imprisoned improperly. And that if we could only give the truth drug to everybody, we could finally figure out who was guilty and who was innocent. This got taken up widely. And then when the intelligence agencies got involved they turned to academics to try to precisely control and see whether, whether these drugs worked or not. And it's difficult. You know, if I give you informed consent and I say, William, I'm going to give you this drug and it'll, it'll, um, it'll force you to, to tell me all your deepest, darkest secrets, well, even if you were willing to participate in that study, what would that information do to you? 
as opposed to if I surreptitiously slipped it in a drink. And that's what the CIA did in numerous field trials. And that's, that's widely known. And, 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 and as you mentioned, George White is probably the most notorious uh, guy who rented an apartment in San Francisco, hired a couple of hookers and um, uh, had them slip uh, LSD into the drinks of a couple of their Johns to see whether the, the Johns would start talking more readily. The CIA did all sorts of uh, interesting things with LSD. They, they were interested in aerosol administration, gave it to a party in Marin County, and uh, the wind dispelled the, the LSD. So they, they were interested. They were trying these things. And um, uh, because of the inadequacy of these field trials, they started going to the laboratory and and asking psychiatrists and neurologists and psychologists to to see whether these drugs could shake somebody up enough so that their behavior would change. Right. So they were they were on record. Like, can we make behavioral change? I think one of the drugs was scopolamine. Is that right? And then, yes. Yeah. So that was one. I think amytal nitrate or amytal or something was another one of the early ones. Yeah. Now these these aren't uh, the drugs have their indications, uh, and um, it's not that they are drugs that that compel truth telling. They are sedating and or confusing drugs, and uh, although. Uh, neither drug is used widely today. Many drugs are sedating and confusing. So the, the idea uh, is if you can get someone relaxed enough so that he or she is less likely to censor what he's saying, that is helpful. And if you get them confused enough, maybe they won't know what they're saying. In the case of the hallucinogens, the idea was to to rattle people so much that they were vastly confused. The trouble is that um, they became so vastly confused that it was very questionable whether you were eliciting useful information at all. Right, right. So those were part of the experiments is how valid is everything come back. And then there was that one, you have the thing about West and administering LSD to Tusco, right? In Oklahoma, you knew West's associate, his name was Chester Pierce, right? Yeah, I, I knew, I knew Jolly West and, and, and Chet Pierce, um, Chet Pierce. I knew very well. There were some, there were um, saints and scoundrels involved in this area as there um are with any area. Um, West and, and Pierce uh, were brilliant guys, but they did a very uh, peculiar experiment that today is at, at utterly laughable. Um, uh, elephants go through a, a seasonal period of aggressivity called must, and um, West was interested in the physiology of this aggression and wondered whether if you could study it in animals, would it shed any light uh, in people uh, and in people with, with severe uh, mental disorders like schizophrenia. So um, he thought, well, look, gee, 
let's let's study elephants uh, during must. So there was an elephant uh, in the Oklahoma City Zoo. The elephant's name was Tusco. And um, th so they decided to shoot Tusco, Tusco with an LSD dart. Um, so one of the th they did many things wrong in this study, but one of the things they did right was say, well, look, let's just make sure that it's not a, ph a phenomenon of being shot with a dart. Let's just see whether it's unique to the drug. So they first shot Tusco with a dart that contained nothing. And Tusco, Tusco kind of trumpeted in a protest, um, but got back to his business of, of eating uh, within a, a couple minutes. And then the next day, they darted him, Tusco, with uh, LSD. But of course, nobody knew what dose LSD to give an elephant. So they miscalculated and gave uh, 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 an incredible uh, dose to the elephant. It was like 12,000 times the normal human dose. Yeah, or something well, like you know, it's, it's, it's just phenomenal. The, uh, but, you know, um, animals metabolize drugs differently. Uh, children metabolize drugs differently from adults. So uh, you, you couldn't just safely assume to that you could extrapolate by body weight but they gave this uh, outlandish dose and the elephant died uh, and uh, uh, jolly west wrote it up and they they published it in science and it, it, as a very interesting case report and in, and jolly west's uh, personal diary uh, which i found in the archives at ucla he he wrote you know i've I figured out that elephants are unusually sensitive to LSD. Um, now, <laughs> it was it was a peculiar uh, conclusion uh, from a strange study, uh, but it 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 uh, uh, it was a precursor to some other um, interventions that led to deaths in LSD. Um, more at the hand of the CIA directly than from academics. Right. Like there's a famous case of Olson you mentioned in the book. Uh, but this all kind of took place. Wasn't it the golden age of psychiatry? Like there was just an expansion of knowledge taking place. So these kind of dark persuasion elements took place in this environment where there's so many smart guys, Sergeant West, Chester Pierce, all these other people are are expanding the understanding of uh, drugs and human behavior. Would you agree with that? Um, the fifties and sixties were were just an astonishing period of growth of our understanding in psychiatry and psychology uh, and neuroscience. Uh, it is interesting to think back. You know, today when we do research. We seek funding from NIH uh, or maybe from pharmaceutical companies and maybe from foundations. Back in the 50s, NIH wasn't much of a player. Uh, and so the, the big player in funding research was the military and intelligence. So many people 
uh, took money uh, for to do their studies. I don't think there's any sin to that. Uh, I think it depends what they did uh, in in the research. The uh, CIA. I'm sure your your listeners know much of this already, but the CIA worked with uh, uh, a program called MK Ultra, which essentially laundered money from Cornell to many other universities uh, throughout the United States to conduct a, a large portfolio of studies uh, of behavior change. It, it's so large that some people have called it the, the Manhattan Project of the Mind uh, because of the extensive uh, array of, of funded support. And it, it wasn't just the United States. The CIA also funded uh, work in Canada uh, as well. All over the world, people were interested in these new technologies, astonishing technologies of behavior change and, and pharmacologic treatment. Right. And some of that went through, I think it was Wolf, you mentioned the Human Ecology Fund, right? That was kind of, he was, was he the centralized person who gave that money out or did it all come from the CAA? I don't, I'm not sure. Well, uh, Her uh, Harold Wolf was America's preeminent neurologist of the time. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man uh, at, at Cornell. And um, he worked in conjunction with Lawrence Hinkle, uh, a brilliant cardiologist, to set up an in institute for human ecology. Now, that's a funny term. It has nothing to do with climate change. Uh, today, but it, 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 the premise of the Human Ecology Institute was that we are all connected and that social for, forces influence our physiology um, in, in profound ways. It, it's actually a very logical and important insight, except in this context, the Human Ecology Institute was primarily interested in some very dark social forces. They uh, were the principal uh, funding vehicle for the CIA to conduct studies on sensory deprivation, hallucinogens, behavior change. There were a couple people who were interested in psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is a form of influence and persuasion, but they were mainly window dressing to give credibility to uh, the portfolio. Instead, the portfolio focused more extensively, far more extensively on these darker, darker areas. And they ran, they ran this also through a couple uh, uh, foundations uh, as well, so that there, the money was being distributed in ways that couldn't easily be tracked back to the CIA. Now, even had it been tracked back to the CIA in the 50s and at least the early 60s, that probably wouldn't have been um, uh, a problem we were in the thick of the Cold War. 
we were beleaguered. Uh, we had to protect ourselves. Later in the 60s and in the 70s, when this came out, this was a very different period of time in terms of what we thought of intelligence, what we thought about risk and our role in the world. Right. So all a lot of this stuff, the Cold War, communism is an excuse. Hugh, you mentioned House on American Activities Committee or whatever was kind of operating. So a lot of those kind of environment, this is this 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 is where all this research was taking place. It's really something else. And then it, I mean, they were financing. I didn't know that Wolf actually traveled to see you and Cameron's operation at McGill. And you have a picture. You went to McGill too, because I saw see that you took a take a picture of. Raven's Crag or whatever that really scary mansion I think, was. I think one of the, uh, if I can just make an aside, for me, um, writing history is is therapeutic. It's it's my effort at trying to understand our our world and um, looking around, um, going to archives, trying to find out things that are hidden away is actually just very compelling business uh, the uh, to go to a, a research institution and uh, settle in the archives and open up a folder that hasn't been opened in 50 years it's uh, it's intoxicating so yes i went to uh, to uh, uh, mcgill visit, mcgill yeah went to visit this appalling place you know when i think of canada i think canada is civilized great food uh, a little different quasi-european it's it's a treat to go there but uh, some of the most terrible things uh, that took place in the context of this coercive persuasion portfolio took place up at mcgill uh, and again the person was of extremely prominent guy this uh, ewan cameron uh, was uh, president of American Psychiatric Association, amongst other things. He is a peculiar guy. Um, he was a terrible researcher, sloppy experimental design, uh, didn't pay attention to his data. He felt he knew the truth. Whatever happened, he felt he knew the truth. But... Um, uh, he wasn't uh, particularly uh, a committed Cold War warrior. He was uh, an expedient researcher who sought funding from a willing funding agency. But his methods were so bad that even the CIA uh, uh, got fed up with him. Essentially, what, what Cameron did was to throw absolutely everything at people to change them. He uh, would administer uh, hundreds of doses of electroconvulsive therapy, insulin-induced coma, psychedelic drugs, and he was interested in trying to get people to regress so much that he could ablate their old memories that were so troublesome 
and then start inserting new memories. So what he did is he had a helmet that he put over patients' heads, and he would play brief snippets of psychotherapy repeatedly to people a quarter of a million times. So first he would regress them, ablate, get rid of their memories, bring them back to practically quasi-infancy, and then he would start to plant these new ideas. Except it didn't work. He could very successfully uh, mess people's memories up and leave them profoundly disrupted for decades afterwards, but he couldn't really prove that he was able to treat depression, treat hostility. And what is most shocking of all is that he did this to his patients with no informed consent. And um, this was a, these were patients, some of, them, uh, some of them had severe mental illness, some of them had mild uh, psychiatric disturbances. Didn't make any difference. He threw everything at them and destroyed many people's lives. Yeah, some people were wrecked forever. And there's a huge commission in Canada, lawsuits. And I think there's still an ongoing lawsuit. And he he experimented on a lot of different people. Like, yeah, it was really one of the most abusive medical uh, events really in history. It's like really something else. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible ethically, but it was also horrible from a cognitive or scientific point of view. Even if he did horrible things uh, to people, the data that he harvested was absolutely useless because he basically uh, uh, wasn't precise. He, he, he put all kinds of people in the study and then when they weren't responding, uh, he would take them out of the study, and then he would neglect to inform people that that many people had dropped out because the drug, the drugs, and his intervention didn't work. So, in, in other words, there's there's one one have absolutely no confidence uh, with his conclusions, and that's even if you were willing to forgive the horrible uh, ethical uh, crimes that he committed. I mean, it's amazing. This is a, like back in the late 50s and 60s, I think. So this is a long, fairly long time ago. I mean, it, we've advanced now 2023. You have a section on the future. Like, what do you think the present day risks are for people in dark persuasion uh, being applied to them? It's a, it's a mistake to think of this as a static area confined to the Cold War and the 20th century. Uh, these things continue to evolve. From a neuroscience perspective, we uh, can do a lot of things today that are devised on, with, the, with our better angels um, as a way of helping people. We can do uh, stimulation of the brain. We use that already. Uh, to help people with Parkinson's disease. We use it for uh, people with treatment-resistant depression. Could you imagine somebody in the future using 
some form of brain stimulation to pleasure or pain uh, areas of the brain to compel belief. Yes, I think one could imagine that. Uh, uh, I think fortunately we have more ethical constraints today, 70 years later than we did in the 50s, but uh, I think you would have to say also that there are certainly many countries that would not have those uh, restraints as well developed. So I think part one is, yeah, neuroscience continues to evolve uh, in ways that are promising and um, on the flip side, somewhat concerning. But I think the other area that we're seeing literally today is social media. The uh, people acquire uh, very outlandish beliefs because they read it on social media. It's as if it, when you see it uh, darting across your computer screen, that it acquires a credibility that you wouldn't believe if someone just mentioned this to you sitting in a bar or at a coffee shop. But there's some aspects of social media that start to smell just like brainwashing and coercive persuasion. So uh, if you got somebody isolated in his room, somewhat sleep deprived, working late at night, uh, only looking at certain sites, this is a, uh, a form of sleep deprivation, isolation from other people. Uh, and when the social media hypes up uh, stress and feeling in th threatened and bullying, it gets to be phenomenal. And we, we see this, we see this all the time. And we don't know how to deal with it as a culture. Uh, social media is a kind of a social intoxicant, a new intoxicant. And uh, we don't know how to deal with it. Look, it's, we've had, we've been driving cars for for over 100 years, and we still don't know how to deal with drunk driving. We've got some constraints, but it's still a problem. That's where we are with social media. And uh, I, I'm not sure what the solution will be, but it's a it's a powerful threat out there. I think I remember like when the, they devised Facebook with the like button, it was like a dopamine release in people's brains. So the more likes you get, like literally... It's brain physiology. It's like incredible, and that Facebook is one, like one of the most popular sites, as well as uh, Instagram. So, these persuasive elements and going after that when you're talking about that, maybe think of cults like you wrote about Heaven's Gate, you wrote about Jonestown, Patty Hearst. But it made me think of like these modern day internet cults that have popped up. There's like little small ones, but some of the bigger ones are like QAnon, where it's obviously it's absurd some of the stuff they say but it really gets people involved and they, i think that there's some type of uh dopamine or excitement where they get an, an uh, adrenaline rush by this new dark information so something very profound is happening through social media i, I totally agree with you uh, and, and it's going on everywhere so uh, and it's it's interesting to look at how different cultures are struggling with it our our culture is uh uh, much more invested in freedom of expression 
And um, I think it's going to be particularly difficult for us to figure out what we want to do about this. And you kind of see that with the censorship or the, the government wanting to control narratives and things like that through social media, really, through through third parties. So it is maybe even like a kind of persuasion where you take things out of the public uh, domain or co commons for people not to talk about it. So some interesting dynamics there. But, uh, Joel, we are at the 45-minute mark. Is there anything you'd like to add? Or I mean, there's so much more in this book. You go into all these other kind of called Stockholm Syndrome. We didn't define that. The whole section on Stockholm Syndrome is definitely a great read because uh, you go in detail about that whole Stockholm bank robbery and stuff like that. But is there anything you'd like to add? Well, um, I, I appreciate your interest and your listeners' interest because I think this is something that we need to take seriously. The, the things that contribute to coercive persuasion cannot be ignored. And there, there's a lot of data on this. It's, it's not just conspiracy kind of stuff. Uh, you mentioned the Stockholm syndrome. There's, the FBI has a, a Hobbes database, hostage and barricade situation database with sad to say about 20,000 um, cases where we have data about what are the circumstances that make people more susceptible to being influenced by their captors and what changes their behavior. So we have data and it comes from the strangest places, but it's real data and we need to take it seriously. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And for people to get Dark Persuasion, is, is there a, uh, an ability? You have an audiobook, Kindle, hardbound, and a paperback, right? Versions? Uh, yeah, you, you can get it anywhere from Amazon or your local bookstores. Uh, and if you, if you want, you can contact me through my website, joeldimsdale.com. And um, uh, I'd appreciate anybody's interest in this topic. Right. And uh, do you have any, are you working on another book, anything in the future? Well, I've been mulling over the nature of conversion, which is another form of behavior change. And, and I don't necessarily mean just religious conversion, it could be political conversion. Uh, so it's a, it's a flip side, if you will, of the, of the dark persuasion uh, book. And I'm, I'm still mulling that over and doing some reading. Nice. And so the best place to contact you is not on social media. It's at your website, joeldimsdale.com, right? Right. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can just click through. And again, the author is Dr. Joel E. Dimsdale, spelled D-I-M-S-D-A-L-E. And the title of the book is Dark Persuasion, A History of Brainwashing from Pavlov to Social Media. Thank you so much. All right. Stay there. Stay there.